Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Finally, the Premier League is back. After what felt like the longest international break of all time, we can fully focus back on the top flight as we head down the home straight. Eight games left of the season and eight games to talk about on today's Football Social Daily, your Premier League podcast with a new show every single day of the campaign. Manchester City are running away with the top flight title, but can Champions League chasing Leicester do the double over the champions in waiting with Pep Guardiola's side set for three matches? Massive cup games this month. Two of English football's biggest clubs, but also biggest disappointments this season, do battle as Arsenal welcome Liverpool. And relegation still yet to be resolved in the top flight as we head down the final stretch with some big games involving Newcastle, Fulham, and Brighton too this weekend. I'm Niall McCorn, and joining me to look ahead to all of the action, we have the MEN senior football writer Ty Marshall. How are you doing, Ty? I'm very good, thank you, Niall. Good to have the Premier League back. Yes, I was about to ask, are you glad to see the back of uh, the international break as much as I am? Yeah, I'm I'm not dead against the internationals, Um, mostly the England games, the England games were pretty turgid, but you know, every now and again you get some interesting stories elsewhere and I mean Germany being beaten by North Macedonia last night was, uh, or on Wednesday night was, was very entertaining, so... At least there were some highlights. <laughs> Absolutely. We've also got Manchester United journalist and broadcaster, part of Sports Social's The Masterclass podcast, Rob Blanchett with us also. Hello, Rob. Hi, now. How are you? I'm very good. Did you take in any left field international action? No, I, just, or were you... I just had a little bit of a break. I just had a little kind of <laughs> just uh, some downtime finally uh, between <laughs> Premier League games, but uh, it's good to have it back. I think I'm right in saying you made the correct decision (laughs) to not watch any. Um, Before we get stuck into the action, I wanted to just ask this question, really. Do you think the run-in officially begins this weekend, Ty? Because we talk about it a lot when we get to the business end of the Premier League season. That's what they used to say, didn't they, back in the day? The business end of the season has arrived. Do you think now is the time for the run-in with internationals back on the back burner firmly? The Euros obviously on the horizon, but very much returns to club action and, and and now it feels like we are entering the final stretch of the campaign yeah I guess so it, it I mean the internationals in a way they almost split the season up into thirds don't they you have that that spell at the start where you just can't get any anything going and there's a break in September and October and November and 
it feels like it takes yeah. forever for the season to get going. Then between November and March, you have that brilliant spell where there's just big games every week and every midweek. And then the international break here, which I suppose gives everyone a rest before the the running. Like you say, there's what, nine, ten games to go? I guess that probably feels like a like mm-hmm. a run in. The the meat of the season has been everyone's lined their ducks up now to go for whatever they're gonna go for and, and the running probably does start. I suppose there's just what are we running in for now? The title's pretty much showing up, isn't it? I think we can safely say. Um, I suppose there's yeah. a bit of angst around top four and, and probably two teams fighting to stay up, but it doesn't feel like there's still loads of uh, drama on the line for the final nine and ten games. But keep listening, we'll, we'll create something. Yeah, absolutely. Something always pops up, doesn't it? I think it's a fair point that Ty makes there, Rob, because around Christmas time, when the games were really coming thick and fast, it felt like there were like six teams in the title race and anyone could go down in a bunch of six teams as well. The season's certainly not flatlined, but ironed itself out, let's just say. Yeah, I think it's very much the the fourth place running. I think that's where we are now. The team who's going to end up fourth, <laughs> get that final Champions League place. And there's obviously quite a few teams still involved in that. And I think when you look at the fixtures this weekend, there's, uh, there's one or two fixtures that jump out at you. But I think looking at what the champions are doing, what Liverpool are doing, is going to be the focus maybe for a few more weeks. But I think mm. it's City's title and I don't think United are going to get anywhere near them. Well, let's talk about Manchester City. That's where we're going to start on today's Football Social Daily Premier League preview show. Leicester City are the opponents at the King Power Stadium. Manchester City make the trip down to the East Midlands Saturday, 5.30pm kickoff. And it's not very often in the Premier League tie that you say a side can afford to lose a game. But this feels like it could be one of those times for Manchester City. Even even though Leicester are in the top four and could even be second if they get the result against Pep Guardiola's side. But City are that far ahead and they've been that infallible this season that it, it seems like even if they do slip up here against Leicester that they'll still be fine in terms of securing another Premier League crown. Yeah, I don't think one one slip up or one mistake now will, will have any impact on that. I think they've... Um... They've broken the back of this season and have made sure of of the title. I think the interesting thing will be how Pep uses this to to look ahead to the Dortmund game. Really, mm. when you do um, when you do Pep's press conferences fairly regularly, the, the same words keep cropping up, and one of them is always rhythm. And he, he's very big on his players being in rhythm, and he doesn't really do. You know, you, you could see a lot of managers resting a lot of players for this game to focus on Dortmund, but Pep's view is always that he will play his strongest team before a big game in the hope that they find this elusive rhythm and then we'll, mm-hmm. we'll go into the Champions League game with, with confidence. So it's probably a big game in in that regard. I, I would imagine a lot of that dates back to his time at Bayern when they won the league so early and, and he rested players and then often their their Champions League campaign sort of fell apart when, when the players were only focusing on the Champions League. It almost harmed them having the weekends mm-hmm. off in the Bundesliga. So it, for the, in terms of the title race for City, this game is... You know, it's largely irrelevant. It's a tough game. It's one you could certainly understand if they didn't win. But I would think for for City and and for Pep looking at it, he would probably be mm. looking at it more with an eye on on Dortmund and the Champions League than than actually the value of the three points. I mean, we talk about Manchester City basically being champions in waiting, Rob, and I think that's an un- understandable angle to come at it from. But Ty's right, big Champions League quarter-final game coming up in the next few days as well. They've also got an FA Cup semi-final. They've also got the Carabao Cup final in April. So it's a pretty loaded month for Manchester City. Yeah, a huge month. And and I think there was obviously what we just say now about Leicester. 
I think for Leicester, this, this is the bigger game for them. You know, they they want to make sure that they don't repeat what happened last season. So we might see in this game that, you know, City probably won't rotate too much, but it might be Leicester have got the bit between the teeth because they will not want a repeat of falling outside the Champions League places, mm. especially after the kind of season that they've had where they've impressed everyone. 100%. I mean, if you look at their next three games, Rob, obviously after Manchester City, they've got West Ham, another side hunting for the top four. And then there's a big FA Cup semi-final that they've got against Southampton. So it could hardly be a bigger return from international uh, break for them, really. Yeah, and they've got to maintain that form now. And it's going into a game against Manchester City, obviously the result that they had at the Etihad at the start of the season. I don't think we'll see anything like that in this game. But there's every chance that they can nick a victory here because, you know, as you just said, Manchester City can afford to drop points now. They're so far clear. And I think that their focuses will shift between the competitions now and looking at the Champions League and obviously the League Cup coming up. So I don't think City will take their foot off the gas, but you certainly could see the Foxes maybe, you know, have one big effort against them and try and get these three points and secure their place in that top four. Yeah, Brendan Rodgers encouraged his players to try and make history when referring to the FA Cup. Obviously, reaching an FA Cup final and finishing in the top four would complete an excellent season for him. And I think you're absolutely bang on the money there, Rob. It certainly felt like after the disappointment of finishing fifth and losing out um, in the top four last season after that final day defeat to Manchester United, it really feels that this season their main goal was to try and get into those top four places and they can still do that however they have had injuries this season although positive news uh, from a Foxes perspective is that James Madison and Ricardo Pereira are both available for this game against Manchester City which is good news obviously they were pretty devastating in that reverse fixture tie that Rob alluded to there can anything be read into that game it feels like absolutely ages ago now but I think they scored five on that day and got a fair few penalties and, and caused City some problems defensively do you think that we can really look back at that fixture and, and draw any comparisons to the game coming up? I wouldn't have thought so. I think the biggest thing for, for Leicester is it probably gives them a confidence that they have done it um, against City and, and can repeat that. But it almost feels like a game from last season rather than this in that they exposed flaws in the City team that you saw fairly regularly last season, but you haven't really seen since then. You know They have improved so much defensively and as a structure overall as a team since then that... I just don't feel that they're vulnerable to those sort of counter-attacks and, and that pace anymore. It doesn't really feel like an area you can particularly hurt City in anymore. Teams, you know, Manchester United had a lot of joy against them like that last season. Leicester did in that game. But it almost feels like that was last season City they were playing, that City hadn't yet, they'd had such a short pre-season that they hadn't yet fully ironed out their system. They hadn't got Diaz fully involved. Stones hadn't yet made his triumphant return. And it, it feels like a very much a new City and... I think, you know, for City, City will almost feel like that game wasn't this season. They've changed so much since then. So I don't think there's a great deal you can take you can take into it. But, you know, I, the, the biggest thing it will give is, is Leicester confidence. And, uh, you know, I do hope they get that top four. I think it would have been very easy for a team like Leicester to miss out last year and spent the entire season in the top four to kind of fade away this year. And, mm. you know, it's a hard club to break into. They're the outsiders to break into it. And I think... The way they've regrouped and, and come again this season is a, a phenomenal achievement from from Brendan Rodgers. I think that the season they've had has been absolutely sensational and they mm. certainly deserve top four. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I'd, I'd like to see Leicester in the top four. It would make for a, a good shake-up, much like West Ham as well. It might be interesting to see how they fare in the Champions League if that was to be the case. Just finally on this one then, Rob, considering that the big news broke from a Manchester City 
point of view in the week that Sergio Aguero is going to call time on his 10-year association with Manchester City in the summer at the expiration of his contract. Just a a few words as someone who supports uh, a club from the red half of Manchester on his impact on the Premier League and his impact as an overseas goalscorer. Of course, no one has come from foreign shores and scored more goals in our league than he has. Well, he's one of the greatest foreign points we've ever seen in our game, isn't it? You know, I think with Aguero, everything he's achieved there. I remember when he was on the market from Atletico Madrid, I was begging Manchester United to sign him. You know, he was the player that I really wanted and I wanted to see kind of in the Premier League uh, up front for us. So it, it was really good, obviously, when he went to Manchester City and became a legend there. So uh, he's, he's, been a, he's, he's, been, he's been sensational. And I think we've just come to the natural end of his time at City, just with the, the injuries that he has now every season, two, three times a year he's out. And Manchester mm. City themselves showing this year that they're not dependent on Sergio Aguero to score goals. So I, I don't mm. think it's necessarily uh, the time for Gabriel Jesus to step up and, and to be the man. I think they'll probably go into the transfer market. But yeah. I, th- I think with Aguero, maybe he's got a year or two left somewhere else uh, at the top of the uh, at the top of his game, and you know little hints that maybe Manchester United are looking for a veteran striker, uh, <laughs> and he might want to stay in Manchester. So who who knows? But uh, no, he's been one of the greats certainly. That would be a remarkable shock, I think. I would certainly be stunned if that happened. Well, maybe not. Maybe Rob knows something that nobody else does. So we'll, of course, keep our eye on that one. Um, for you, Ty, especially as Rob says, possibly Manchester City dipping into the transfer market, just on Aguero, it took them a while to crack the company nut because you know he left and then it took them a little while to get Diaz to come in and fill that void. And that kind of rocked Manchester City a little bit. It took them ages to get a replacement for Fernandinho. Eventually they settled on Rodri, but still Fernandinho is a key factor in that Manchester City unit. David Silva, almost irreplaceable, still waiting to see you know, whether that becomes a problem for them. And Sergio Aguero, do you think that they're, they're going to be able to afford to kind of just leave it and not bring anyone in? Or do you think it's a matter of importance that they do go in and find someone to replace him? I think they will have to find someone to replace him. Um, I mean, there's... there's coped this season without him. He's had no impact at all, really, this season. And Jesus hasn't really had much of an impact either, if we're being honest. And yet they're still 14 points clear at the top of the league and still on for the quadruple at the start of April. So not having a world-class striker this season hasn't really hurt them. But sooner or later, it it will. And, you know, I I think if you put... I mean, if you imagine Erling Haaland in that team and the chances they create, it's a pretty frightening prospect for the rest of the league, Mm, really. But... Probably the fascinating thing about Haaland this summer, I think it's going to be more interesting for the teams that don't get him rather than the team that does because so many teams need a, a world-class striker. And, you know, you just look at the two in Manchester, like United and City. Both of them want Haaland. Both of them see Haaland as the ideal solution, but at least one of them is not going to get him. And it doesn't really feel like there's many names out there being mentioned as a plan B. It doesn't feel like there's another obvious world-class striker that's available. So I think the interest is probably going to be amongst the teams who who don't sign him rather than the the fortunate team that does. I don't know. Danny Ings is available. I've seen a few. That's true. (laughs) I've seen a few reports suggesting he could be on his way to the Etihad. Mm. Of course, we'll watch that one with keen interest. Leicester against Manchester City, though, kicks off Saturday at 5.30. Time now to talk about two giants of the English game, Arsenal and Liverpool. They do battle at the Emirates Stadium, 8pm kickoff Saturday night. This, Rob, feels like it should be a big game. But in reality, sadly, as has been the way this season with these two sides, it's just another fixture. Well, I actually think it is a big game. I think when we talked about Liverpool at the top of the show, um, I think that this is a must-win for Klopp. Now, I know we've talked extensively about why Liverpool have failed this season and where they are. Mm. You know, let's look at some of the stats. Liverpool have won 13 games this year, only in the Premier League. 
uh, Leeds United have won 12. So they've only won one more than a, a promoted team from last season. For Liverpool, mm. they need to still keep winning games. If Jurgen Klopp does not get in the Champions League places, he needs at least a Europa League place. And if he does not make that, then I really do believe that his job is possibly up for grabs. I really, really do. I think it's been such a horrendous season for them that this makes this game kind of much more interesting. And we know that Arsenal are in this kind of mid-table slump and they're trying to recover and just have as good as an end of the season as possible. But I think for Liverpool, these big games now, especially with the complication of the Champions mm. League, where they want to rotate and obviously do well in the Champions League, they still need to win these Premier League matches. Do you think that they will sneak into that top four picture again, Rob? If, if you think about this game, if they do manage to get a win over Arsenal, they can push themselves up to fifth and then put the pressure on Tottenham and West Ham, who play Sunday and Monday respectively. So, you know, it's a matter of must win for you. But do you think they will kind of edge themselves back into that top four frame? They're only going to get in the top four if they're perfect. They're really going to have to be perfect all the way now, because I think when you look at the teams above them or floating around that fourth place picture... Everyone's got a decent run of form going. You know, Liverpool are not, you know, unless they actually win all of their games towards the end of the season, there's no guarantees. Chelsea have suddenly, you know, stopped conceding goals. Uh, they've got some stability there. West Ham are still flying. Tottenham are in with a shout. Everton are still there. So all of these teams will be looking for that fourth place. And I think when you look at Liverpool, after what they did really over the last two or three seasons, this season, you can't just put it down to one big injury to a centre-back yeah. you just mm -hmm. really can't there's something fundamentally going wrong there and obviously we've heard a lot from Salah in the last week or so of obviously his his potential ambitions uh, about going abroad it's a really big game for for Liverpool they have to beat Arsenal they have to try and be at least in that picture mm. and you know if they end up if they end up seventh but potentially even eighth that is just a complete disaster for Jurgen Klopp and I do think Liverpool's owners will be asking questions yeah, it's certainly been a limp title defence and I think that there are questions obviously over the injuries but also whether just Liverpool tie have suffered from burnout because even though in 20 years when people look back they won't see this in terms of the context of the last three seasons but to go neck and neck with Manchester City and get 97 points and not win the title uh, to then win the Premier League and then to do it three seasons in a row it's something which we've very rarely seen done in the top flight of English football in its entire history, let alone to do it at this moment in time when the intensity, the way that the game is played nowadays is so much more intense and, and high octane. So do you think that it is just a case of burnout or are there deeper issues at Liverpool like Rob alludes to? Uh, I think it's most, I think you can probably put most of it down to, to burnout and injuries. I would imagine Klopp is aware there's probably some structural issues there. But I'm not sure how serious they are, really. I mean, I think it's quite telling that Manchester City did did two seasons of, you know, close to 100 points. What is it? 198, I think. And then yeah. fell away after two seasons of constantly going to the well to, to reach that level. Liverpool basically did the same. The year they pushed City all the way and then the year they won it with 99 points. And now they've fallen away. So I think there's probably a pattern there that, that both of those teams have managed two years of close to perfection and they've just found it impossible to sustain it for a third year the the lack of crowds as well has probably had a a big impact on Liverpool for that not so much for you know there's always talk about the, the crowd at Anfield and things like that more for the fact that subconsciously those players are probably thinking you know we achieved the holy grail last season we've won the league and then things get a little bit tough with the injuries and almost just subconsciously you can ease off five percent and lose five percent of of what was carrying you last season and Liverpool won so many games last mm. season 
where they didn't play well. They didn't play brilliantly and they'd win them late on. They'd win games 1-0 or 2-1 coming from behind and it was almost like that. They just had this burning desire to win and this burning desire to put last season right and that carried them a long way last season and this season, for understandable reasons, it's not been there. It's not been needed as much and when things have got tough for them, they've just not been able to, to rely on that to bail them out. Does it feel like that mountain's been climbed and that there's nowhere else for them to go in the sense that they had the expectation and the weight of a city who have a huge football club yet hadn't won a top flight title in 30 years? Of course, they had won the Champions League before that. They had this remarkable Anfield unbeaten streak. But now all of those things have either been ticked off or they faded away. So does it just feel from a Liverpool perspective that they've kind of just achieved that group of players exactly what they wanted to achieve? Possibly. I suppose as, as players, you always want to win it again and, and win it better um, and, and add to your medals. And obviously, you know, they won it without a crowd last season. So they probably want to experience that that celebration. Um, and mm. if you... If they get the chance in pre-season and the players come back to fitness and you almost have a reset and the crowd are there next year, then we've seen with City this year that it, you can go again and Liverpool will be hoping that they follow that City pattern and, and do go again this year. But I would think that the fact they have climbed the mountain and won it is probably more of a subconscious thing. I don't think it's any coincidence that since they had that, that tough spell in, in mid-December, it's kind of spiralled out of control and it's almost like they just they just found it tough and... It's all right beating Crystal Palace 7-0, but when you're struggling to break down Brighton or Burnley, and, and you know, in the back of those players' minds when it's cold and there's no crowd there and it feels a bit soulless, perhaps it's just it's creeping into the back of their minds that we did win it last season. It's not the end of the world if we don't win it this season. We can go again next year, and if that happens, you only in this league you only need a five percent drop off, a two percent drop off, and it can have a major a major impact on your form. And I would probably think there is a bit of that at play with Liverpool. Yeah, 100%. I suppose you could liken it to when I went to Ibiza for the first time. It was amazing. Um, the first time will always be the best time. It doesn't matter how many times you go after it. will never top the original. Um, so maybe there's a little bit of that um, involved at Liverpool at the moment. Let's talk about Arsenal then, because we can say about how Liverpool have fallen off a cliff, Rob. But how far have Arsenal drifted uh, from where they want to be? Naturally, the ambition at the start of the season for Arteta has to be, and I'd be stunned if this wasn't in his remit, to finish in the top four when you're a club as sizable as Arsenal. When I was growing up, Arsenal were the dominant force. I remember watching them vividly without losing a single game all season with some unbelievable players you know, running things at Highbury. Is it realistic to expect them to be involved next season with the indifference that they've had this campaign? Well, I think at the start of the season, if you said to Arsenal fans, you're going to lose 11 games this year and draw six, I don't think anyone would have believed you. you know, I think when you look at Arteta's projects and what he's trying to do there, this was all about progressing up the league and becoming a kind of force, in, at least in the top six or seven, finding your way to maybe that fourth place back into the Champions League. Uh, I just think when you look at Arsenal, they just look so stale, you know, in terms of the the difference between maybe their veteran players and their younger talent and trying to find the middle ground there where they get consistency. Mm. And, and I just think with this Arsenal team, they fail on that almost every other week. You get two or three really good performances where you feel enthused by them and you think that they've found something, the structure, and then one game comes along, it all collapses and they act like a team who are in ninth. So I, I, it's one of these games, I think, with, with Arsenal and Liverpool that this could be the game where Arsenal, you know, the, the, the Peacock's tail goes up and they fly at Liverpool and Liverpool have got injuries and problems and issues themselves and Arsenal go and get a, a historic victory against the champions. But mm. you really don't know which Arsenal's going to turn up and that really is the problem for them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, two stand-up performers this season, Bukayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe, two youngsters who I think have carried Arsenal at times. They're both unavailable or at least major doubts for Mikel Arteta ahead of this game. So certainly makes for interesting viewing Saturday 8pm Arsenal against Liverpool at the Emirates Stadium. Now time to talk about Manchester United's return to domestic action after the international break as they welcome Brighton to Old Trafford. This one's a Sunday 7.30 kickoff. What do you think the United approach will be? Rob, Brighton were good on the opening day when these two sides met, but how do you think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will go about taking this game on? Well, Brighton were very good against United in that game, and and I think that's something that Ole will be wary about. I think also just looking at the run-in for the end of the season and now United are out the FA Cup, Ole did that rotation there in the Cup to try and rest a few of his players and to kind of eke it out after the, the Milan game. So I don't think you'll see that this time around. I think this will be the strongest Manchester United that, that you possibly could see. And I think United are still trying to guarantee that second place because that really is the trophy for United this season. I know they're still in the Europa League, but to end up second and maybe significantly above those big clubs below them, talking about obviously Chelsea, Spurs, Liverpool, Everton, Arsenal, if they kind of cement second behind City who are flying, then they will feel like that they've made some progress this season and that's really important for Ole's project. We've also seen during the international break some announcements, uh, not board level, but certainly executive level, I guess you could say, Ty, in the addition of sporting directors and technical directors. Finally, Manchester United have uh, someone who's going to be overseeing the director of football role, I guess, as an umbrella term. When do you think that the fans might start seeing the fruits of those particular appointments? You can't imagine it would be this season, but maybe starting with next year? Maybe, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the, I'm not sure the fruits of it will be particularly obvious really I mean they're two internal appointments and people who have been filling fairly similar roles anyway really so it's not like it's a major reshuffle it's not like they've brought Monchi in or someone to to oversee recruitment and John Murta's role is not going to be just on recruitment um so it it's not like it's a radical overhaul as such so I think any any changes we see will be kind of light touch changes and just a bit more joined up thinking really the you know, it, it's undoubtedly, I think, a win for Solskjaer, the fact that these are two internal appointments, two people he's, he's very used to, to working with. And it, it, it's clear they're going for, it feels much more like a collegiate approach rather than what was, you know, perhaps suggested two years ago and what a lot of fans would like in bringing in a technical director who has got an amazing transfer record. I think United were, were put off by that. And the more people like Louis Campos and, and Monchi and various others came out and did interviews and talked about how amazing their transfer record was. I think the more that made United kind of cower away from them, that that wasn't really what they were looking for, a, a transfer guru. They wanted a, a more collegiate approach to, to the whole system, really, rather than someone who's mm. just going to come in and press the right buttons in the transfer market. I think Rio Ferdinand's name was even in the frame at one point, wasn't it? Yeah. A couple of years ago when things first started rumbling. Obviously, Rob, you're a big Manchester United fan and cover the club extensively. You've spoken about this with... Hader as well on the Masterclass podcast, which you can also find on the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's your take on on the general situation regarding those uh, sort of above Ole Gunnar Solskjaer appointments, let's just say? Yeah, I agree with what Ty was saying there. I think for United, it's more about having a vision from the board 
room downwards now and actually having some joined up thinking where whereas we were seeing Ed Woodward being heavily involved in Galactico transfers a few years ago and his vision for the football club of of being Real Madrid Mark II which didn't work at all obviously bring Angel Di Maria and players like that into the football club so I, th- I think that this will just be a continuation of what we've maybe seen over the last 18 months with with Ole um, if United can secure that second place and finish uh, where they are now, that will be success for Ole this season and obviously looking to next year. And it means that they can go into the transfer market with more people around the transfer scenarios and actually being involved who've got football acumen rather than just people in the boardroom who haven't got the football experience. So I think I think it's good for United and I think that, that as, as Ty said there, it's really good for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because it gives him maybe some more control that maybe his previous managers before him didn't actually have. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Anyway, Manchester United and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, for that matter, will be sweating on the fitness of Rashford and Martial, both rated 50-50 to feature against Brighton on Sunday. Of course, Rashford withdrew from England duty due to, I think it's an ankle problem that he's suffering with at the moment. Mason Greenwood also a doubt, uh, as is Wham Matter, who very sadly is mourning the passing of his mother. So um, best wishes to, to Wham Matter there. I'm not sure whether he'll be involved against Brighton. As for the Seagulls, Graham Potter's side tie now have a six-point cushion above the dotted line but they've still got Everton Chelsea West Ham and Man City to play so how safe are they currently things look all right at the moment but with United next and some of those other big teams that I've just mentioned still to play it could still be a bit dicey for them yeah that's a tough running I didn't realize their running was was quite that tough although maybe there's a theory that that those games will will perhaps help Brighton in a way and that they're they're better against teams who they like to play football as we know and those teams will, will give them space to play and almost allow them to play their own game. And that, that might suit them in a way. We've already said how good they were against United back in September. And they, I mean, they were robbed of even a point that day. How they didn't at least get a point was, was remarkable. And it would be no great surprise if they did manage to get a point this weekend, given United's injuries. You would think they've got enough to at least pick up one more win and, and a nine-point cushion may do it at this stage of the season. It's certainly hard to see Newcastle at the moment picking up too many, too many more points. The the way they're playing and the mood around their club. So you would think they'd have enough. They've certainly created enough chances to have already been, been well out of it really. And you, sooner or later, if a team creates that many chances, you would think it's going to give them a win at some point. And and even though they've got some tough games there, there's the odd winnable one in there as well. And I think they will just about have enough. And I think the. A lot of it, when it comes down to this stage of the season, is the mood around the club and the mood around Brighton has seemed positive all season, despite the fact that they've been dragged into a relegation battle. And, and it certainly seems that everyone's pointing in the same direction. Yeah, you could argue that they created enough chances on that opening day against Manchester United to keep themselves safe all the way up till now. I think they had a record for hitting the woodwork most times in a single Premier League game. Anyway, the Albion, as they're known to their fans, the Seagulls travel up to Manchester United for a Sunday 7.30 kickoff. Time for a short break now here on Football Social Daily, but don't go anywhere because we'll be back after this with some more Premier League previews. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sports Social. 
Welcome back to Sports Social's Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League. Listen, make sure you hit subscribe and that way you won't miss another episode of the show again. Brand new podcasts every single day of the top flight season. Time to take a look at the rest of this weekend's top flight action, starting with the game at Stamford Bridge, which sees Chelsea welcome struggling West Bromwich Albion to West London Saturday, 12.30pm start this one. They've looked absolutely solid under Thomas Tuchel so far, Rob. Have Chelsea, you've already mentioned it already on the show, conceding just two goals. Are we expecting West Brom to cause Chelsea any problems at all? Well, they shouldn't do, should they? You know, I think when you look at the form book and actually see how West Brom have played over recent weeks, even since Allardyce came to the football club, yeah. there's been nothing there to suggest that they're going to have this huge end to the season and that the form is just, you know, on the tipping edge and that they're going to suddenly start winning these games. I think for Chelsea, with them, as we talked about in that fourth place mix, they've they've got to a point now where they've stopped the ball going in one end of the net and they need to just score a few more goals at the other end. And if they do mm. that, then they should be top four comfortably. And this is a kind of game where maybe they can just, you know, ease into it a little bit more, allow Werner and, and Havertz to, to just have some more freedom up front uh, and to go for a big victory. Because I think if they get a two or three or four nil victory in this kind of match, which they can, mm. uh, it will propel them really to where they want to be at the end of the season. I think it's a great point you make there, Rob, because they haven't actually won a game by more than two goals since Thomas Tuchel came in. Now, they also haven't lost a game, and at the back, they've been super tight. Like, two goals conceded, I think one was a penalty and the other was an own goal. So if you're talking about genuine goals from open play, they've been pretty much watertight. But as you say, they've not exactly blown anyone away. And with the money that the owner spent in the summer, you know, upwards of 200 million on players. We've seen it before from Abramovich that he's keen to get a bit more bang for his buck. So although Thomas Tuchel's come in and steadied that rocking ship that was shaking under Frank Lampard, it might be a bit of time, or it might not be too long, should I say, before they start wanting to see maybe a little bit more in the way of goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, at the end of this season, certainly where Chelsea were when Lampard left, it's about getting Champions League. So as I said about Liverpool earlier on and, and being in those European places, for the money that Chelsea spent and obviously the, the talent that they brought in, yes, mm. they want to see goals, but they want to. it's also about getting the points every week and being as high up the table as you can. This was a Chelsea team that wanted to challenge for the title this year and hasn't. So it, next season, that will obviously be the, the bar set there again. But they're another team that need to be in the Champions League. They need to get that fourth place. And this is the kind of game where they can really kind of go for it, get those goals, improve their goal difference. And that might help actually at the end of the season. Yeah, I think you're right. Chelsea, I think they're now favourites for fourth, personally, Ty, with how they've played lately. How do you see it? I would agree, yeah. I think they've got to be favourites for fourth. And, and they might even look at maybe creeping up and, and picking off maybe Leicester, maybe United if things go badly there. They're in such good form. It kind of feels like they've, they've gone under the radar a bit under Tuchel just because it, it it has been, as we were saying, very workmanlike, hasn't it? They've been interesting to watch rather than particularly exciting. Defensively, the improvement's been been incredible, but they are sort of grinding games out without really putting to use that attacking talent they've signed. They've got so many exciting attacking players, but it just feels like neither Tuchel nor Lampard have, have managed to really get a cohesive tune out of all of them yet and, and find a system that really suits mm. all of them so he's done a great job in those terms in, in keeping it tight defensively and making sure his team gets over the line but they've not been thrilling to watch but if they can keep keeping that number of clean sheets then I, I think you'd have to make them favourites for, for fourth and the fact West Ham are their nearest chasers West Ham have had a brilliant season but it's it's it still feels like West Ham are going to drop points somewhere yeah. and 
I think that will make life a little bit easier for Chelsea. If they aren't already uh, condemned to relegation, I think it's going to be tough for them to get out of it. I think if West Bromwich Albion do lose, they're pretty much down and they'll be playing championship football again next season. But they travel to Stamford Bridge. Tough game, this one for the Baggies. But I think they did get a, a draw, an unlikely draw, earlier on in the season. I think they were 3-0 up in the reverse fixture, actually, this, this season. So that game kicks off Saturday, 12.30. Another game involving relegation contenders, Newcastle United at St. James. Park welcome Jose Mourinho's Tottenham Hotspur five past two kickoff Sunday afternoon now we shouldn't be surprised at these figures Rob but a recent survey in the Athletic showed that Newcastle fans are unhappy with their club across the board owner manager the structure the way the club is run and these findings they surely must transmit to those Newcastle United players on the pitch in today's information age with social media and everything like that I can't imagine that these Newcastle players are immune to this sort of negativity around the club, this disgruntlement from supporters, let's just say. Surely those grumbles are starting to find their way into the ears of the players and that maybe sometimes can affect performances. Well, Newcastle have been a team that have carried negativity over the years. So when they've had good times and obviously then it switched back to the bad times, they have this kind of weight of expectation. And you look at where they are now on the, on the brink of relegation with a team that's not performing, with a manager that doesn't look like he's maybe got the tools to get the job done at the moment. So there's no surprise, especially with the ownership issues that Newcastle have had as well. So the whole thing is a melting pot of sadness, I think, for Newcastle fans. Uh, and I think it might be the ultimate sad ending for them uh, with relegation this season because that's really where this team looks like it's heading at the moment. Mm. It looks like it looks like a championship team. It plays like a championship team. I think it'll be in a championship next season. Yes, it's an interesting one, this, because we've spoken about it on Football Social Daily before about Mike Ashley's standpoint on the whole situation and, you know, the way that Steve Bruce came out bottom of this survey in terms of each set of fans from all 20 Premier League clubs was asked whether they'd be happy if the current manager, the current incumbent was still in charge at the beginning of the next season. And I think it was a resounding no. I think around 20% of Newcastle fans said they'd be happy to see Steve Bruce still at the helm at St. James's at the start of next season. And, and Mike Ashley's viewpoint or reluctance to dismiss Steve Bruce, let's just say, I think is, is always down to the deal with the Saudi Arabians. He feels, Mike Ashley, that he's already sold the club. And he feels that obviously with, with arbitration taking place between the Premier League around this deal that, was not that didn't take place, that the Premier League basically said no to, I think that that also is having a massive impact on what's going on behind the scenes at the football club. I don't think Mike Ashley feels like it's his problem anymore, even though it very much is. And they are certainly in trouble. As for Tottenham, they also rank very low in the survey tie regarding their confidence in manager Jose Mourinho. I mean, how much does Mourinho need to do to win Spurs fans over? It was good at the start when he came in and, and things looked all right. But then there's been a rough patch this season. I mean, let's just say they beat Man City in the Carabao Cup and they pick up their first trophy since 2008. Is that going to be enough for Tottenham fans? Is that going to be enough for Jose Mourinho? Is that enough for any manager anymore? Because if you look at the job he did at Manchester United, he won a couple of trophies at United, but still, that never really kept him in his role. No, it didn't. Uh, he's he's, you know, he's a trophy-hunting manager, isn't he? And he will, if he wins that, he will trumpet that trophy non-stop. That is all we will hear about in press conferences for months on end. But I don't, I don't think it's enough for Tottenham. I think, was it Wande Ramos that won their last trophy? I think it was. Um, mm. He's not exactly got a statue outside the new stadium. So <laughs> as, as big as it is for Tottenham to end this sort of so-called trophy drought, 
at the end of the day, it's the League Cup. Um, yeah, that's always going to be what's co- what it comes back to yeah. is, oh, Tottenham haven't won a trophy for however, what are we now? It'll be 14 years or something coming up for that. You know, Tottenham haven't won a trophy in that long. And if they do win the League Cup, fans of opposition clubs will only turn around and go, yeah, but it's only the League Cup. No one cares about that. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation in a way. It is in a way, yeah. It, you know, it'd be nice to win a trophy and, and for the fans to, to celebrate. But as a, as a team, they looked in a far better place when they were losing Champions League finals than they do reaching League Cup finals. And I, I just don't see... I know it felt like it was going badly wrong under Pochettino, but I don't see that Tottenham are any better now under Mourinho than they were in the final days of of the Pochettino era, really. It, mm. It's striking that they can have a run where they'd won five in a row going to Arsenal and then... In, in a space of a week, they can put in two such abysmal performances against yeah. Arsenal and Dynamo Zagreb. And it's just, it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see a positive ending for Mourinho for me from it. They just mm. don't look like a coherent team. And it, it feels like he's lost his, his sparkle. He, he, you know, yep. he did okay at Man United, but he burnt the place down in his final season there because he didn't get his way in the transfer market. And, I think players were sick of playing under him and I think that's going to happen at, at Tottenham sooner or later. He's very demanding to work for. He's throwing the players under the bus. I know Lloris mm-hmm. backed him in that interview in Zagreb, but he is constantly throwing players under the bus when they lose. It's never his Which is something he never used to do, Ty. He never did that in the early no, days at Chelsea. He didn't. It it feels in a way that he doesn't... Players players have changed even from sort of 2005-06 when he was at Chelsea and you had warriors like Lampard and Drogba and Terry, but even this generation of players, I think they need to be treated differently. They're almost their own. I think Sean Dice used to say, or, or does say that a squad of 23 is almost 23 individual companies. Everyone's got their own social media manager and their own advertising manager. They're all their own their own company, really. And these players this days, especially younger players, just won't accept being spoken to and treated the way I think Mourinho treats them. And I'm just, I'm just not sure he's, he's ever adapted to that, really. And, he he defended those players at Chelsea because they would go to war for him every week. And if things went wrong occasionally, that was fine. But I think he very much feels now like modern players don't go to war for him every week. So he still resorts to the same principles of, of telling them where they're going wrong in public. But that doesn't get a response anymore in a lot of cases. And, and I don't I don't really see that he's particularly changed his ways from that. I think you're right. I think he has lost his sparkle. And I think that that second spell at Chelsea, when he got dismissed there, I think that was it. I think that was the turning point. Um, and I was very surprised that he even took on the role at Tottenham Hotspur because if you had asked Jose Mourinho of 2006, 7, 8, whenever he was at Real Madrid, even up to 2010, let's say, would you ever be the manager of Tottenham? Obviously, the answer would probably be no because of his association with Chelsea. But he'd probably look at you with, in a strange way and think, why would I manage a side that are mid-table in the Premier League and you know sometimes get into Europe? But you know, I suppose it's testament to the work that Levy and Pochettino have done with the new stadium and getting them into the top four on occasions that you know Tottenham has become an attractive proposition. Or is it just the right job for Mourinho in terms of he's kind of on a downward curve and Tottenham are on a bit of an upward curve and they've met in the middle? Anyway, you're someone, Rob, who's watched plenty of Jose Mourinho football uh, mm-hmm. over the last few seasons uh, and probably before that too. My question to Ty, I guess I'll ask to you as well, is winning trophies enough for a manager anymore? He said that, um, I thought it was a really nice term, that Mourinho kind of burnt the burnt the house down when he left uh, Old Trafford. Um, do you think that leaving a club with silverware under your belt is kind of enough of a legacy to leave in the modern day? Well, he certainly burnt the house down and everything around it and several other houses quite near. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a horrible ending and... 
you know, when you look at Jose Mourinho, the reason why you take on Jose Mourinho is you know everything that goes with him, the ego and the talk and the chatter and everything that he provides. Mm. But the reason why you bring him in is because he is, in inverted commas, a winner. That's why you bring Mm. him in. When did Jose Mourinho really last win? You know, this is the whole thing. At Manchester United, he won those two trophies, but they they were cup competitions. They were not the trophies that Manchester United really wanted. And when you go back, you've really got to go back to kind of the Chelsea year, obviously the last season before uh, he left there to, to win the Premier League. Are these players now looking at Jose Mourinho in training every day and saying, you are a winner? If you tell me what to do, I know that we're going to win. I don't believe so. And I think that's what happened at Manchester United in the final season. And I think we're seeing that now at Tottenham. You know, does Harry Kane really look at his manager at the moment and think that everything he's putting out on the football pitch tactically is where Tottenham Hotspur need to be to win trophies? I think this Tottenham team are going to end up 8th or ninth this season. And I think that will be the end of Jose Mourinho at Spurs. But the damage that will be done with that, with maybe Son's contract and with Harry Kane maybe having aspirations to lead the football club, it could have huge connotations for Tottenham Hotspur long term. Mm, yeah, I- I'm quite keen to see how this one pans out because it does feel like there's those traditional Mourinho storm clouds over Tottenham at the moment. They travel to Newcastle United, 5 past 2 kickoff on Sunday, with the Toon also in desperate need of points to stave off relegation themselves. Another team really in the mire when it comes to the bottom three is Fulham. They're currently 18th and they travel to Birmingham to take on Aston Villa at Villa Park, Sunday 4.30 kickoff. Jack Grealish is back in training, Ty, which is great news for Villa fans and he's likely to be involved as well, which is a positive for Dean Smith. Do you think we'll see an immediate rejuvenation in Villa with his reintroduction to the side is he that crucial because I think I mentioned on podcast previously that you know Aston Villa are in danger of becoming Crystal Palace when they don't have Wilfred Zaha there'll be a similar stigma there if they can't find a way to perform without Jack Grealish in the team yeah I think that's probably a, a fair assessment actually um he is a, a phenomenal player he's been so good this season in the, in the back end of last season at the start of last season must admit I did still have doubts about him but he, he is so good now and he is he is head and shoulders the best player in that team and the most creative player in that team. And I think it's only natural that a team of, of Villa's standing would rely heavily on, on someone like Jack Grealish. So it would be no surprise if he came back in and, and did give them a spark. I don't think they've got anyone like him, really, who can fill in for him. They also mm-hmm. took Ross Barkley on loan at the start of the season and, and it looked like he was building up a, a good understanding with Grealish and could perhaps fulfil that role when he was out. But... It's kind of stalled a bit for for Barkley there, and he he's not he's not kicked on as anyone would hope to think. So without Grealish, they've not really got mm. a natural replacement for him. But it's very difficult to get a natural replacement for for someone that good and that important and that unique as a footballer. Really, what he does is is yeah. fairly unique. So it's it's very difficult to get a replacement. So when he's out, it's going to affect the balance of the whole team. So it'd be no surprise if if he came back in and, and suddenly Villa improved considerably. Yeah, I think I'd side with you there. I mean, certainly uh, in terms of the remainder of the season, Scott Parker, the Fulham boss, knows that there's still a long way to go and and Villa aren't an easy team to face, particularly with Grealish coming back into the side where we are expecting them to perform better. You've said just a moment ago, Rob, that you think Newcastle will be the, the team that goes down. I mean, my question here is, will Fulham run out of games before they can get to safety? I guess, considering they've played the better of any of the relegation candidates in recent months, you think the answer to that would probably be no? Well, they've got two points to make up on Newcastle and they've got a better goal difference. So I think it's very doable. I think when you look at Fulham, I don't think there's been a team who are kind of on that cusp of relegation 18th place 
where you actually feel pretty good about them in terms of what they've been doing over the last few months, certainly since the January transfer window. Mm. So I think with Fulham, with this game, you know, Villa are mid-table, they're 10th. Yes, they've got Grealish coming back. Yes, there's there's that potential to have some upside there in their form. But I think the season's done for them. I think they've kind of achieved what they wanted to do, which was obviously stay well clear of relegation. Uh, and they've done that. They've proved that they are a better team than they were last season. So I think if they come 10th, 11th, 12th, they'll be pretty okay with that. You know, the better performance at the start of the season, but I think they'll be okay. I think we look at Fulham, they they feel like they've got the bit between their teeth. This is the kind of game where they can go and get the points, even if mm. they just nick a 1-0 or something like that. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that they're the team with the momentum. Even if those teams out of the bottom six, you know, they feel like the team that might pick up those extra points. And with Newcastle yeah. being so bad at the moment, you should see them at least catch them and should overtake them by that final game. Yeah, well, Scott Parker will certainly be cheering on his former club Tottenham because they play, as we've just mentioned, five past two on Sunday, right before the game at Villa Park against the Cottages, which is a 4.30 kickoff on Sunday. So Fulham will know exactly how close they are to getting above the dotted line by the time that game kicks off at 4.30 on Sunday. Still two more Premier League games to look forward to involving Leeds, Southampton, Burnley and Sheffield United. We'll talk about it next here on Football Social Daily. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to the podcast. The Yorkshire Derby to talk about now as we look ahead to the weekend's Premier League fixtures. Leeds United against Sheffield United. Three o'clock kickoff Saturday afternoon. I don't really know too much about this as a rivalry or a derby. I've just kind of guessed that because both sides are from Yorkshire, Ty, that it must be some kind of rivalry there. Um, Aside from that, is there much more to look out for in this game? It certainly feels like with only a handful of fixtures left, we are going to start to see more and more dead rubbers, let's just say. Sheffield United aren't officially relegated yet, but there's no chance they're staying up. No, they're they're gone and have been gone for a while, haven't they? It does feel like a game. Knowing this has been coming up on the agenda, I've been scratching my head trying to think of something interesting to say about it but like I say it, <laughs> it does just feel like there's very little on it besides just watching Leeds and it's always nice to to watch Leeds I think you have to give credit to, to Leeds for what they've done this year I know it can they can they can cause debate sometimes when they play as well or as open as they did at Old Trafford for example and, and lose 6-2 and a lot of the talk afterwards was about Leeds despite the fact they'd lost 6-2 but I think they've approached it in such an open way. And regardless for all that, you'd take you'd take the odd 6-2 defeat and the odd thrashing as a newly promoted club, I think, to be 11th mm. and absolutely guaranteed survival with, with nine games to go or as good as guaranteed survival with nine games to go. So on that, I think you have to give them a lot of credit. They've got some great players to watch. I think mm. Rafini has been brilliant this season to, to watch as one of the best new signings in the league. So it'll be interesting to watch them. But as a spectacle, it does feel like there's, there's not a great deal of, of jeopardy riding on it. Yeah, if you're struggling to come up with something to say for Leeds against Sheffield United, you'll be overjoyed to know that Southampton versus Burnley is coming up next on the agenda. But we'll get to that in a second. Let's focus a little bit more on Sheffield United because obviously it's almost as if we're waiting for the the hammer to fall, let's just say, Rob. They've had a few weeks now without Chris Wilder. He left by mutual consent. They've even had owner Prince Abdullah come out and do an interview with Sky Sports and kind of run the rule over Wilder's departure and suggesting that Wilder asked to leave a couple of times and there was disputes over severance payments and it's gone to the LMA and the PFA and all the rest of it. 
Um, they lost 5-0 in their first game after his departure on the pitch. Do you think now we'll see them wilt between here and the end of the season? Do you think that, you know, it kind of feels like even though they are down and, and relegated all but in having the R next to their name in the table, do you think that they will put up a fight at all? I think they will. I think it's been such a horrendous season for the players and for the the way their their campaign kind of unfolded that this is a, a write off now. They don't know who's really going to be in charge of the club next season. Mm. They don't even know which which players will be retained by Sheffield United. Obviously, there will be some some sales going on there. Uh, I think it's quite an interesting um, comparison when you look at what Leeds have done this year compared to what Sheffield United did last season. And I think the one way of looking at this game is to kind of compare and contrast those two things. So Leeds United this year have come up come up and played a brand of football which has attained them points and got them up the league. And they've been a kind of sleeper success in the same way that maybe Sheffield United were last season. I think one of the reasons I tipped Sheffield United to be relegated this year at the start of the year was that I felt that people would work them out tactically. And I think that that will be the case for Leeds next season. So as great mm. as Bielsa plays his football and very entertaining, I think we might see that kind of swing in the same way that, that Sheffield United collapsed this year, that Leeds United you know, might end the season well, might end up ninth, even eighth, even you know these kind of heady heights that, mm. that their fans have been wanting for so many seasons. But then next season, reality might bite and we might see that Leeds actually copy what Sheffield United did this year. I think it's a great point and also one that raises questions about Marcelo Bielsa and his future at Ellen Road because I think he's the sort of guy that will die on that hill and I think he won't be averse to walking away from Leeds United if he feels like he's been figured out and he can't offer anything more to the football club. He certainly feels like that sort of character, um, especially with the way he kind of operates in this unique manner in terms of contracts and, and stuff like that. So I think that's one to keep an eye on for sure. Anyway, Leeds United against Sheffield United is the 3pm kickoff on Saturday. And the final game we're going to talk about is your early Sunday offering. To be honest, if you're on Easter Sunday, I'd stay in bed uh, until well after 12pm because that's when this one kicks off at St. Mary's. Southampton against Burnley. The only interesting thing I could pick out of this one, Ty, both sides have got identical goal difference. They've got identical points. There's just a place between them in the Premier League table. However, the stigma around Burnley and the stereotype is that they play this anti-football, long ball, horrible, ugly, turgid, not good to watch. Whereas Southampton under Alf Hasenhurtl are labelled a more progressive side and pleasing on the eye. And even though that's very much true from a aesthetic perspective and a visual perspective is this the most basic basic example in the Premier League that we've seen in a while of it being a results business because like I say they're almost identical in terms of their points and their goal difference and all the rest of it but yet they're two very contrasting styles yeah I think that's a very fair point actually and I think I think Burnley fans are probably happier with Dyche at the moment than Southampton fans are with with Hassan Hussle I don't think you'll get many if any Burnley fans grumbling about the style, we know it's not great. We know they don't score a lot of goals, but for a club of of that size, the, you know the town's got a population of seventy, eighty thousand, and you're now talking five, maybe six years staying in the Premier League, and they stay in there relatively comfortably every season. Really, um, obviously, there's still a bit of time to go now, but they're they're seven points clear, I think. I don't think it's gone down to the final two, three games for them for a while now, and they they still manage to stay up fairly comfortably every year without spending much money, without a, a brilliant squad. And they've always just find a way. And I think that says a lot about Dyson and the hold he has over that club and, and the way they do just grind out points. And for a neutral, it, it's not great to watch. Neutrals aren't really 
you know, Luton aren't looking at Monday night football, say, and seeing Burnley on and thinking, fantastic, and no one's going to be setting aside their Easter lunch to, to watch this particularly. But for Burnley fans, Burnley fans don't care about that. Burnley fans aren't thinking, let's get rid of him and get a more progressive manager because getting a more progressive manager isn't going to make Burnley win the league or, or challenge for Europe or anything like that particularly. So the best person they've got is, is Dyche. The interesting thing for Southampton is probably how they finished the season. Now. They've been on a terrible run of form. It does feel like Hassan Hootel is, is taking them places, but then they have these these sort of spells where it just all goes wrong. We know there's been the two 9-0s at the moment there. They're on this awful run. I think they're only wins against Sheffield United recently and it does kind of feel like they've almost been, been treading water this season. You mentioned before, Niall, I think that earlier in the season we were looking at sort of six, seven, eight teams maybe being in a title race and I think October, November time, we were even looking at Southampton up there at one stage. I think they went top briefly at one point and it, it feels a long time ago now, the fact that they're now down in 14th, could obviously be 15th at least after this weekend. And I think there's probably a, a bit of pressure on Hassan Hootel just to, to finish the season well and, and give them something to go into next year. I don't think it'll be under pressure yet, but mm. I think it, it's certainly maybe approaching that stage and, and how they finish the season could be key to that. Yeah, and another good example of what you've just said there, Ty, would probably be Brighton, even though that they're probably better to watch under Graham Potter. They're still finishing 15th, 16th, the same as they did under Chris Hewton. And although things are, are probably down to the fact that they can't finish their chances, you know, the facts are there laid bare for all to see that they're still very, very similar in terms of league position. Um, for Southampton then, because I think Burnley, as Ty says, are probably all right and, and secure from safety. Do you think, Rob, with the fact that they are in an FA Cup semi-final against Leicester, that will take precedent now for them between now and the end of the season? Or do you think that there will be a real focus on trying to finish the season strongly as well? I think both. You know, I think it does paper over the cracks, the, the cup run. What I will say is this, we, we speak to quite a lot of Southampton fans in our, in our job and people around mm. the football club. And even with the way the season has gone this season, uh, there's, there's been a huge kind of swell of support around Hasenhutl from both the fans and, and people at the football club. You know, after they lost 9-0 to United, there wasn't a blink. There was no one at the club that said, right, we need a change or the manager needs to go or this is not good. There was just support. And I, I was very impressed by that. And I think when you look at Southampton and Burnley in the positions that they're both in at the moment and where they stand, I actually think it's Burnley who in the next 12 months will see change because there is new ownership there, people obviously investing in the football club. Mm. And there seems to be a desire there to not be this style of Burnley. So we've seen them now said five, six seasons doing this every year anti-football as you described it long ball winning one nil or nil nil draws and I think that they're the team actually on the cusp of change uh, and I think that Sean Dyche is as kind of well respected as he is and the great job that he's done over a long period at Burnley I actually think that this could well be his last season next next year I'm talking about coming up because I think that they will look to make a more progressive change and maybe go in a direction that say Southampton did yeah yeah, and certainly we've seen in the press in the last couple of days that Sean Dyche allegedly is top of Crystal Palace's shortlist to replace Roy Hodgson in the summer. Should the uh, should the elder statesman that is Mr. Hodgson decide to leave his affairs at Selhurst Park? So that certainly would be an, an interesting development, although I think someone described it as out of the frying pan and into the fire, replacing Roy Hodgson with Sean Dyche at Crystal Palace. But there we go. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, Ty. Um, really appreciate your time on the show, as always. My name's Niall. Don't forget, we'll have a full rundown of all the weekend's Premier League fixtures, looking back at all the results and all the big talking points with Fergal, Brennan and co on Sunday. So make sure you hit subscribe on 
Football Social Daily and that way you won't miss that episode. But that's it for now and we'll catch you again soon here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Instagram at Sports Social Official. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.